I am reading from uh, John chapter 1, verse 43 to 51. And this will complete the first chapter. The next day he proposed to go into Galilee. And he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we have to open the scriptures and look and see what you have for us. It's always get great to know Jesus better and to find the words that perhaps open up some things about him that uh, we probably already know, but we maybe don't have as much a conviction or maybe just don't see the, the depth of what he, he does for us and knows about us. So I just pray that this will be a good time in which you will uh, galvanize the body of Christ and help us to do the things that you've called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Ah, this morning I woke up and I had a stiff neck, and I still have it, sort of, so I guess I have to be counted among the stiff neck generation. <laughs> In this passage, what we're going to do is have a little look uh, before the passage in which Jesus uh, confronts Nathaniel, and do a little... Uh, sort of a survey of some of the major events that has taken place up until this point. So, from the very beginning, uh, Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy of Jesus. And you say, well, that's the part I usually skip when I read this, you know, scriptures. But this particular aspect of de demonstrating Jesus as the king gives him the legal right to rule over Israel. And then we go and we see that, of course, he is, uh, his, the shepherds that are out in the field are announced by angels about his, his birth. He's visited by outcast shepherds. The shepherds were considered outcasts because they were involved in the temple flock. And even though that was a privilege to uh, shepherd the temple flock, they were not allowed to take the flock or take some of the lambs and actually offer a sacrifice for themselves. So they were considered um, actually unclean by the Pharisees. But 
It's interesting how God reaches down to those that are the down and out, the ones that uh, are ignored by those that uh, are in high places, and he reaches down to these shepherds to let them see his son. He's worshipped by the Magi, the wise men from the east. And at his baptism, we find that we hear the voice from, from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And of course, this gives him the divine right to rule, the, the voice of the Father speaking and uh, putting his approval on his son. And then, of course, the temptation of Christ. He's tempted by Satan. And one of the things that Satan tries to tempt him with, of course, is you know, all the kingdoms of the world. And so he takes him up to a high mountain. And uh, we figured that the mountain is probably Mount Hermon. So this is an actual scene from Mount Hermon, looking down. And uh, he says, uh, I offer you all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down and worship me. You think about that. Satan actually wants the Son of God to worship him. I mean, talk about how twisted his mind is and what he actually thinks about himself, that he might actually be worthy of worship. Of course, Jesus rejects that. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This, of course, gives him the moral right to rule. He resisted and remained faithful to his calling. So we come to uh, John the Baptist, of course, in chapter 1 of John, where he says, He who comes after me is, has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So even John recognizes that Jesus is indeed special. And he's beyond what John is. And even the idea of Jesus' pre-existence before John was born, even though John is six months older than Jesus. So, uh, we find this confrontation coming about in the first chapter of John. The fact is that when the Pharisees come up, or these uh, religious leaders come up to question John the Baptist... They've already sort of taken part in some of the things that he has already done. He's been baptizing, so they had come for baptism. And he uh, rebukes them for it, saying that they're a brood of vipers. And now they have decided, and what happens in that stage of being part of the, the group? The, um, the Pharisees have come to a point of saying, this is a significant movement and that in this, we need to find out a little bit more about this man named John, the, this baptizer. And so this is actually the second stage of their investigation where they must now ask him some questions. And so they say, who are you? And he knows what they're actually going after. And he answers them specifically, I am not the Christ. Of course, if he's not, then they have a number of other options. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet, as predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18? And each time he responds to the negative, I am not, and no. It seems like each time he responds, it's a little shorter, more terse response. So who is he? He explains clearly, I am 
A voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. His job is to prepare the way for Messiah. But notice that uh, the word Lord there in uh, the Isaiah passage is actually Yahweh. That means he's preparing Yahweh's way. That means that Jesus is God, fully God. And although there are many cults that say, oh, Jesus is a, he's a created being, say the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's the Archangel Michael and, uh, and so forth, that he can't possibly be Jehovah, but he is. And John testifies to John the ba- uh, testifies to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at that point, he gives the option of for his disciples to go and follow. He doesn't actually tell them, you know, go and follow him. But they apparently some break off and go and seek Jesus, desiring to be uh, a disciple of his. Interesting, though, as determined and as clear John is about who Jesus is, and as convinced he is about this man called Jesus, that he is the Lamb of God. I mean, he says that several times. There's no doubt he knows who Jesus is. And yet, there's some doubts that creep into John's thinking as he's arrested and he hears about Jesus, and he, Jesus doesn't seem to be moving toward taking over and uh, ruling over the Roman Empire and uh, bringing about uh, the, the kingdom because that's what they were preaching. You know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John preaches it. Jesus also preaches it. And then his disciples preach it. But it doesn't look like the kingdom is coming. And so he, he has some doubts. He asks, are you the expected one, the coming one? Or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus uh, answers back through his disciples. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. I think the Lord knows that we are weak people. There are times that even though we know the scriptures, we know who Jesus is, we can fall into doubt. Even John apparently had some doubts later on. John's disciples come up and they ask him this rather interesting question. It seems strange. I mean, if you read this passage and they're coming up so that they can, you know, offer themselves as potential disciples. But they don't say, Lord, Master, Rabbi, we'd like to be one of your disciples. Would you accept us? Instead, what do they ask? Rabbi. Where are you staying? Holiday Inn. That's not actually what they're saying. They're actually asking to be his disciple. But you see, in Jewish culture, you just cannot be that forward. You cannot just approach a teaching rabbi and ask, Can I be your disciple? Because that's just, just too in your face. It's just not proper. And so the proper way to ask is this. Rabbi, where are you staying? Jesus knows exactly what they're asking. Now, he has two ways of answering. 
If he says, none of your concern, that means he's rejecting them from being disciples. But, if he says, come and see, that's his way of accepting. That's how rabbis would accept the disciples once they ask that question. And so, the background is very interesting, how they have a certain protocol in which they are able to approach and become a disciple of a rabbi. So he's got some fishermen as disciples. And I'm going to jump to something else. There's a prophecy found in Matthew chapter 2. A prophecy that some people don't quite get or wonder about. There are four prophecies actually found in Matthew chapter 2. But this is the one at the very end. And it says, uh, And he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, if you look at this, when you read the New American Standard, anything from the Old Testament, if it's a quote, it'll be all in caps. Do you see all in caps here? No. Unless I... Huh, no. So... Is this from the Old Testament? Because it says, it, you know, spoken through the prophets. And you won't find this verse in the Old Testament. So, why does Matthew say that this has been fulfilled? What is he saying? Did Matthew make a mistake? The liberal Bible scholars would say, yes, he made a mistake. It was wrong. Some say, well, Nazarene is uh, actually... Um, Another way of saying uh, Netzer, the branch of uh, Isaiah 11.1, 1, that uh, those two are connected. But most Hebrew scholars will say there's no real connection between the word Nazarene and Netzer, or branch. So we're still kind of stuck as to what is being stated here. What is Matthew trying to say about Jesus? Well, the key is that there's an S at the end of prophet. Did you notice that? Um, just highlight that for you. Why is that important? Well, part of Bible study is observing very carefully. It's plural because this is what is called a summary prophecy. That means there's more than one prophet speaking this, saying this. So it's a summation of what had been said in the Old Testament. And what was said? The concept is very clear. We see a number of places, and this is perhaps the most obvious. Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and one from whom men hid their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The picture of, from the Old Testament is that the Messiah, when he comes, he'll actually be despised by men. And so that's why when Jesus comes up, to Nathaniel, and he's um, going to address him. And of course, Nathaniel has this response. Remember? Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, Nathaniel's famous response Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why? Because those who came out of Nazareth were considered despised, they were not well considered well-liked 
They were not always considered spiritual Jewish people. You want to be spiritual, you come closer to Jerusalem. But way out in Nazareth, they're, they're more interested in making a living, making money, getting away from the virus, whatever it is. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And certainly, Jesus would be despised. But Nathaniel's sort of preparing us for that. And the interesting interchange now takes place. Okay, Jesus comes from Nazareth. What's going on? It's a city not well recognized and the people not well respected. And here he comes and he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now that's an interesting statement. And that causes Nathaniel to respond, How do you know me? And the, um, the response is simply, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Notice I highlighted fig tree. What's the big deal about the fig tree? Well, it's not an apple tree. It's not the forbidden fruit. Why a fig tree? And yet, when we see him tell Nathaniel this, look at Nathaniel's response. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Where did that come from? What did Jesus say to convince Nathaniel to the point where he just goes 180 from where he was? That he now proclaims Jesus as the son of God. The king of Israel. What is it that he said, did we miss something? Probably. I think there are times when there's something behind the scenes. And so much of what we see in the, the Gospels is certainly with a Jewish background. And I don't know, there are not a whole lot of people that are Jewish. I know that we, I know one person is. But the rest of us are Gentiles. We just don't know the, the background. So what is it? The rabbinic teaching is that if you want a, a good meditation on the scriptures, sit under the fig tree. I don't know why they said that. Maybe fig trees indicate fruitfulness or something, but um, this is something that they were taught. So, what we understand now is that Nathaniel was probably meditating on the word of God. But even that doesn't explain to us why Jesus would say that, you know, uh, you are a, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Um, what is that all about? I believe that Jesus knew what Nathaniel was meditating on. Let's break it down a little bit and see. All right. An Israelite with no deceit. All right. Um, so, well, who's the first Israelite? There was a man named Jacob. And after he wrestled with the angel, the angel gave him a new name. Israel. How about Jacob's life? What kind of character was he? Was he an upstanding person? 
Oh, was he cunning, deceitful, a heel grabber? Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's Jacob, all right. Jacob, the first Israelite, <laughs> one that had lots of deceit. That was the hint. That's what caused Nathaniel to realize Jesus knew what he was meditating on because he was meditating on the life of the patriarch Jacob. Say, not a stretch. Are you stretching a bit? No, I think it's confirmed. What we see is Jesus also saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Where's that from? Whose life was that from? Jacob. It's like, that's it. He's confirming to us, Gentiles. Nathaniel, you got it right. I knew exactly what he was meditating on. He's meditating on the life of Jacob. So that becomes the reason why suddenly Nathaniel turns around and goes, oh, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. There's no doubt. I think that's one of those interesting things that we tend to miss as Gentiles. We go right past that going, oh, okay, fine. Now, what's all this about? Jesus knows his men. He knows Nathaniel. He knows what Nathaniel was meditating on. And he chooses his twelve out of a group of people that if we're honest, we might not want to choose these individuals. Think about it. Matthew. What was Matthew? Oh, yeah. He was one of the higher-ranking tax collectors. And, of course, as all tax collectors, they were loved and cherished by the people, right? No, despised. They would not only assess how much that uh, the person needs to pay taxes on, but Add a little markup so that they can skim off the top or the bottom. So they were those that basically were feeding off of their own people. And you've got Simon, the zealot. What is a zealot? Oh, you've got to be full of zeal, right? Well, a zealot were a group of people that basically wanted Israel to be free. They wanted the yoke of Rome to be off their necks. They didn't want to have to be in subjugation to Rome. And so, they would do whatever they could, insurrection, murder if necessary, to fight for their right to be free. You can't have two opposite ends as much as Matthew and Simon. One who would, do, would, would kill and die for Israel, and the other would sell out Israel. He brings these two together to be part of the twelve to get along, imagine some of the discussions they must have had. Wow. He brought a rather interesting, somewhat uh, motley crew together. Peter. Peter, who always likes to put his foot in his mouth. Well, he didn't like to, but he did. Sometimes he would get it right. You know, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's good, good. Then shortly after that, he tells Jesus he's not going to go to the cross. That's no, God forbid you should do that. And he just totally missed it. It has to be rebuked. Get thee behind me, Satan. 
And he says, I'll never deny you. Never deny you. No, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And he does. He's intimidated by a servant girl and some others. And he goes off after realizing Jesus is right. Saying, you know, basically weeping bitterly, realizing, you know, his weakness. But see, that is the step that sometimes we need to take to be confronted with our weakness. Because Jesus knows us. He knew Peter. You're going to deny me. Peter says, no, no, never. If I should die, I will never deny you. And he does. And yet, what happens? The resurrection happens. And something changes in the lives of these disciples. What changes? Jesus is alive. He sends the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, it's Peter that steps up and preaches his amazing, brave message. I mean, look at what he says. This man, who's referring to Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. <laughs> he was afraid of a servant girl. Now he's not afraid. Unafraid of what might happen. That even those that probably cried for his crucifixion were in that crowd. And he would say this. Why? He has seen Jesus. He knows Jesus is alive. He's conquered death. And so suddenly he is super brave. That's the transformation we need to look for. Because Jesus knows us. He knows what we're thinking, what we're meditating on, good or bad. And we need to be, in a sense, delivered from ourselves. To the point where we can do that which is required. Uh, what a group. Prof. Hendricks would say, you know, I wouldn't have chosen that twelve. One denied him, another betrayed him. They all ran away. And yet, Jesus wasn't confident in his men. He was confident in what he could do through his men. And that's what's so wonderful about knowing Jesus. We have our weaknesses. We have our you know, ups and downs and doubts and whatever fears. But he's not confident in, in our weaknesses. He's confident in what he can do through us. This is a little part of my Sunday school lesson. So uh, I thought I'd throw this in. At the end of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, uh, after describing this rather interesting impact that we are a fragrance of of Christ, and it affects everyone. From some, it'll affect them like an aroma from death to death. And for others, it'll be like an aroma of life to life. For some, they'll reject us. They'll step back and they go, oh, I, I really don't want to have anything to do with you. And you might have met someone like that, or lots of them. You start talking about Jesus, and they're, they're trying to find the, the door out. And others will be curious, interested, because there's something attractive about what you're saying and what you believe in. 
And so he asks the question, who is adequate for these things? And the answer is found in the next chapter. And I love this verse. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. This is what makes us able to do that which we, we normally think we can't. There was a time back in high school when I had to do an oral report. Now, you must have had to do some oral reports at various times. Stand in front of the class, read your report. Good thing I didn't have to memorize it. Just read it. But I don't, I didn't really like to do that. I got up with my paper in hand, stood in front, and I put the paper in front of my face so I didn't have to see my, the rest of the class. I could feel my knees knocking. I mean, they were just really shaking. And I started to read the best I could. Halfway through, the teacher, Mr. Gu, said, All right, Harvey, that's about enough. <laughs> and I was absolutely convinced that public speaking was not the way to go. I would never. I would, you know, you say, someday you're going to be a public speaker. You're going to be standing in front of people and talking and sharing with them. I said, no, you're crazy. You are out of your mind and you have no idea. It's funny, though, because God does have a sense of humor. You never know what God has in mind in store for you. And so here I am. We are always led in triumph in Christ. And that's our, the promise. That is something that we have as something we can say we're going to triumph because Christ triumphed. He triumphed over sin, Satan, and, uh, you know, um, the, the flesh, the world, everything. So we follow in that triumph. It's all going to end up correct. We're on the winning side. But we don't get prideful about that. We recognize that uh, the Lord has something for us to do. And we want to be able to know that Jesus knows us. And he knows when we're moving in the wrong direction. We seek his counsel so we get right with him. Make sure we're doing right. There's people that don't like the idea that Jesus knows everything or God knows everything about us. In fact, the atheists are, are almost terrified about that idea that somehow God, if there is a God, can actually look and see what I'm doing. Look inside my mind and see what I'm thinking. Ah, I don't like that. I hate that. Somebody peeking over and, and knowing about me like that. And it's probably because there's inside of them a sense of sin that they, they can't stand before a righteous God. And they will not be able to do well before a judgment. And so it's better to believe there is no God. And they try to convince themselves desperately there is no God. And yet, there is. And he walked among us. And he knows us. Does that bother you in any way? I find that greatly comforting. That he knows me. And that if... I'm not doing that which is right. I, I can come back to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I confess my sin. I want to walk with you. I want to stay right with you. And when he comes back, I don't want to 
shrink back in shame, knowing I wasn't doing what he wanted me to do. I wasn't living the way he wanted me to live. There's an important aspect about Jesus knowing us. Keeps us on the straight and narrow. Sometimes we almost think that we can hide from him. Just tuck myself in my corner, in my closet, wherever. He can't see me. Oh yeah, he can. He sure can. Now, question of course should be also asked, do you know him? He knows you. And the picture, of course, is that our sins have separated us from, from God. And the only thing that can bring us over to a life with God is the cross. And only when we have that and we take that step of faith, we say, okay, I want that. I need that for my life. Cross over. It's by faith. Faith alone. And through that we can be one of his. And when we understand that he can see us and know us, it's a great comfort. A point of confidence that whatever we're going through, he's right there with us. He knows it. And we're going to make it. I, uh, I'm going to share a song. I think we're going to see uh, the words up on the screen, so... I haven't practiced this very much, so we're going to give it a try. And if you'd like to join me, you certainly may. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to live a life that demonstrates righteousness, the perfection of the Son of God. And he demonstrated how much he does indeed know of us, his disciples. And yet... In that, he was confident that through them, they would reach the rest of the world. That these individuals, with all their weakness, frailties, unlike us, cannot do that which Christ calls us to do. And yet, through him, we are adequate, we are able to do that which he calls us to do, commands us to do. Thank you for that. Help us walk in a way that best pleases him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. For our benediction today is from Psalms chapter 18, the first three verses. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. May God richly bless.